This is your official welcome to Path to CitusCon, the podcast for developers who love Postgres, where we discuss the human side of open source databases, Postgres, and the many Postgres extensions. A uh, big thank you to the team at Microsoft for sponsoring this community conversation. I'm Claire Giordano. And I'm Pino DeCandia. Today's topic is from developer to PostgreSQL specialist. And I have the privilege of introducing our guest today, Dirk Van Veen. Uh, Dirk started his career as a Java developer on a SaaS offering that hosted insurance data. And over the course of the next five years, uh, Dirk moved from being a developer to becoming a Postgres database specialist at Adyen. Welcome, Dirk. Yeah, thank you very much. Honored to be here. Well, we're, we're glad you're here. All right, let's dive in. We have so many questions for you about why and how you made the transition from being a developer to becoming this expert on Postgres. Um, I guess I want to start with what is it? What does it even mean to be a Postgres specialist? Like, what does your job at Adyen entail? Yeah, that's a nice that's a nice start. What does it entail? I would say best parts of my days are when things are not going as we planned. Uh, when the manager is stressed out and not everybody is working out as you planned, uh, something is slow, and then you have to jump on it and fix it. I think these are my best days. So yeah, basically jumping on problems, jumping on the problems, fixing long-term problems. That's what okay. I prefer to do. Spend a lot of time on tough problems and then find beautiful solutions. Okay. So that's the almost the reactive part of your job, right? The detective work, the debugging, the solving, the fixing. Um, is there also a proactive part of your day in terms of um, helping the rest of the developer team know what they need to know to try to avoid some of those problems? Uh, yes, I think especially when it comes to partitioning. Table partitioning within Postgres is really my topic. I automated it all and a lot of time if I'm working with developers, I spend talking with them about partitioning. How do you partition? Why do you partition? Why do we pick a certain strategy? Uh, why do I think they should partition the table or should not partition the table? And the second part of interaction with developers is usually around performance. And then okay. do, do the developers usually come to you or, or do you often find you have to reach out to them to help them fix something that you think could be done better? When it comes to partitioning, they usually find me. Uh, and we have a system within Adyen. Every time a developer creates a table and this table is partitioned, a kind of a alert goes off and they have to go to the DBAs and ask for approval. So even if they don't find us uh, in advance, they will have to find us before they can actually commit this. Oh, that's interesting. That's a All great right, idea. So, so now I, I want to go back in time to 2010 when you were a Java developer. Was there, was there a moment, like a particular day or a particular month, something that happened that triggered you to change your path from being a developer to becoming more of an expert on Postgres? No, it was not a not this bright moment or this yeah, this 
moment where everything falls into place. I, I studied applied physics and the moment I graduated, I hardly knew what a database was. Uh, my introduction into computers was already fairly late. So somewhere halfway around my study, I learned how to program and I, I really enjoyed programming. And after I graduated, I got a software developer job at a company where I really learned, yes, I do enjoy writing code, but I don't like this company. So I already left them after half a year and then I switched to the, to the company which made software for insurance companies. And that's, that's where I basically got my introduction into databases. And first, I was even a poor code writer at that moment. Uh, I had to learn how to write proper code. And only after a while, you get the hang of it. And then I changed teams. And I had to work for this one customer, which was at the moment the biggest customer we had. I think it still is the biggest customer. And if you are the biggest customer, you also have the biggest databases. And that was basically my introduction into databases, that a customer's calling you like, hey, I have a problem. My database is slow. And I'm, uh-oh. How do I connect to the database? And how do I know what is slow? But I kind of got the hang of it. And I got this magical feeling sometimes that if you're fixing something in the database, everybody's happy. And... I like doing this and I got better at it. And then I decided, hey, we, we have a lot of databases internally as well. Maybe we should improve on this one, uh, on these databases as well. And then I became a manager of the internal DBA team. And after a while, we transformed the company from a software company to a SaaS company. And we had to do big databases for insurance companies on the SaaS platform. And I had this smart moment where I said, yeah, I can manage internal databases. I can do SaaS as well. And that with the knowledge I do have today about databases, I would not have said that. I did not know enough about databases by far to do this job. So I worked and I worked and I worked a lot for two years. And then I was able to manage both DB2 and Oracle on a SaaS platform hosting insurance data for insurance companies in the Netherlands. Okay, so let's pause on that. You just revealed that you did not start on Postgres. You started on DB, DB2 and Oracle, is that right? Yeah, actually DB2. DB2 is my first database love. And I think I still, I would still enjoy working on it. What? Can yeah, you I'm say sorry. That on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I haven't worked on it for five, six years, but I spent so much time on it and it was my first database. So I think I can still do it. I think it's really interesting that you just revealed too that maybe you were a bit overconfident in the beginning, saying that you could you could manage these large scale databases in a SaaS platform. Um and then finding out that, oh, I don't know as much as I think I did. I, I, that probably happens to all of us at some point. Um, there's something uh, powerful to not knowing what you don't know. It gives you confidence. Yeah. Was it and panic learn and, on the panic, top. Yeah. Was it panic and learn or, or did, did, it, did you happen to have a gradual ramp up of those parts you didn't know? 
Um, I first I spent a month on learning what I didn't know, and I was pretty scared. But we had about a year or a year and a half to build this entire platform. So I basically had a year and a half to learn this and build it all. Uh, first, I had to do Oracle. So I, I spent basically a year on Oracle, just reading everything I could find about Oracle, install it, work on it, and uh, and fail with it. I think these days, I, I was working four days a week because my kids were smaller and I was taking one day a week, I was taking care of them. And I had a very smart colleague. And the day I was off, we had to deal, he broke the database. So when I arrived next day, I had to fix it. And we played this game for a long time. He broke it on purpose to give you a challenge or he just did it without, without trying? No, no, no. He was actually breaking the database on purpose. So I had a tough job the next day. And this was a test database. There was some data in it. And he was just, he was deleting files on the file system. He was screwing up my backups, deleting my backups. Uh, <laughs> I remember this one day he had such a dirty trick. He created a user on the file system, Oracle, with a uh, zero width white space at the end of the name. So when you copy the name, it's the same as the original user. But there were actually two Oracle users. But if you copy the name, you can't see the difference. And then he changed the ownership of half of the files to this new Oracle user, which appeared to be equal to the one I already had. <laughs> I, it almost took me the entire day to fix this. Very devious. Wow, that's but, trial by fire. Yeah, but it also it, it was such a boost to my confidence because by the time he had done this for months and months on me, I was really confident that, yeah, whatever happens, I can fix this. You have to tell us how you took revenge. I never did. I was actually very grateful. No counter challenge? Uh, I, uh, I think I had my challenge when he joined the company. Uh, when he joined the company, uh, he never worked on Linux before. And uh, I, I introduced him into the system and I said, well, if you want to change this, you have to change this file. He said, like, my, my screen is only black with white letters. How can I change this file? Oh, I said, we have this great tool on, the, on, the, on Linux. It's VI. And you, open, you use VI, and then you can change whatever you want to this file. Well, he says, how do I use VI? Well, it's easy. You take VI dash and then the file name. And then you open it, and then you're good. And at that moment, I walked away. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah, he made some weird noises behind his computer, uh, but he uh, he never asked how to fix it. But he did some googling that day. Um, do you still work with this person? No, unfortunately not. I tried to work with him again, but they made him a CTO of another company. Got it. So he doesn't work. I mean, he doesn't want to work with me anymore. Hmm. So I, 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 oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to pivot to a different a different question. So, Pino, if you've got something more on this thread, I, go for it. I, not so much this thread, but relate. Uh, so, so something you said earlier, Dedek, um, uh, uh, caught my attention. So, you said your best days are when things are not going as planned. You also talked about this magical feeling, and I know, well, at least for me, the magical feeling only comes once stuff is fixed and while stuff is broken, and especially if people are relying on you to fix it quick. 
um, it's a hair on fire moment. So, uh, what is it like for you? Do you do you, um, uh, do you stay calm? You know, just ex explain the experience of things aren't going as planned. How do you approach that? Yeah, usually first my heart rate doubles, and I'm like, all right, this is not good. And usually I try first to take a step back, like just walk down the stairs one floor, get a cup of tea, take a few deep breaths, go back up, and then just start slowly and methodically on, on, on the issue. Because if there's panic and your heart is pumping, and you immediately jump on it, at least that's how it works for me, if I immediately jump, then I can't focus and I do the wrong things. So for, to my feeling, I, I really need to slow down on, this, on these panicky moments. And only when I slow down, I can, I can analyze what's going on and try to, even try to relax. Like this is, this is not a panic situation. This is just a moment to do a good job. And yes, the magical feeling is only afterwards when you have a beer and everybody sighs the, the breath of relief. I think that's really interesting. I mean, I, and I suspect that advice you just shared about needing to slow down, having a cup of tea, breathing, breathing, right? So that your your brain can focus um, is probably something that gets shared even, you know, outside of the developer space, outside of the database space, probably gets shared by athletes, right? Probably gets shared by surgeons, like anybody who's got something very important to do and needs their, their brain to be at peak performance. Um, take a cup of tea. That's pretty yeah, cool. It's hard. it's hard if you're doing sports to take a cup of tea, but yeah, I, <laughs> I try to be a professional rower and I came a long way. So I've been on some big tournaments. And yeah, before the match, it's like you're waiting in the water. You you can't move anymore. You're just waiting for your start position. Yeah, and then it's just this brief. You know what to do. You know the you know the skills. You have the skills. You practiced. Just take a brief and then just do it. I love it. Um. Okay, so you have worked obviously on Oracle and DB two, and now Postgres. Um, this podcast is aimed at the Postgres community, Postgres users, customers, developers, uh, contributors, community members. Um, so I just have to ask, like having worked with other databases and now having worked with Postgres for a number of years, what are the things about Postgres that have really appealed to you uh, in comparison to those, those, other, those other databases? One. Before I started working on Postgres, I was like, if you hand so many tasks to the operating system, especially if you compare it with DB2 and Oracle, how can you get a decent performance out of a product? If you can't control all these variables, how can you do it? And then I started working with it first at the insurance company, but it was introducing the database and it was like no load at all and I was getting bored. Uh, but during this time I got... Uh, involved with the Postgres community and I heard some rumors about a Dutch client with huge Postgres databases. And it was like, yeah, well, if they can do it, we can definitely do it. But yeah, I didn't know anything about it. But then I was bored and I applied for a job within Adyen and uh, that's where I'm working now. And indeed we have huge databases and Postgres is just pulling it off most of the time. And for me, that's 
it's amazing. And sometimes I'm so surprised, like with relatively small amount of work, you can get so much work done at such a high speed. It's pretty cool. Are there are there aspects of Postgres when you talk about being surprised or you um, talk about Postgres pulling it off? Like, are there pieces of the system, components that surprise you in particular? Not one in particular that I think of like, oh, it's amazing that that works, but there is so much of it. If you have something and you want to do it and it's like, you Google this, can I do this on Postgres? And usually the answer is, yeah, you can do this. And it works out. You can use JSON, Graph. Uh, I was looking into uh, UUIDs uh, last week, even this week. And you Google it and there's an extension for it. And then you can download the source code, compile it, work with it. It's it's just amazing that there's so much. Uh, so you mentioned extensions. I mean, that that's a whole topic in and of itself. Um, because I started in the Postgres community working um, for Citus, so on the Citus extension, uh, I just became enamored with the power it gave the community. Like, and what I mean is, if all new innovation, if all new capabilities had to be integrated into the Postgres core, then by definition, there's there's some gatekeeping there, right? And there'd be some limitations on on the speed at which you could innovate or the types of things that could be done because you'd need to have sufficient agreement, et cetera, et cetera. I love the fact that the extension ecosystem is a bit more free um, and, and allows for surprise, right? Allows someone to go create an extension because they believe in it, right? And then they can make it successful even when other people might've been like, oh, didn't realize that would be so useful. I don't know. Uh, any thoughts on extensions? Am I alone in those those feelings? No, I think they are pretty cool, and there's so many of them. And they are, if they are proof they're worth, they they get back to the core. And you can even even take it one one step further, because people fork the Postgres projects. And at first, I was like, this is such a waste effort. There are so many people working on forks of the Postgres project and doing their own thing, and then, but then it's it's deviated from the core. And this weekend, I was having a discussion with someone I met at FOSTEM. FOSTEM is a huge open source event in Brussels, which is in Europe. And I, I talked to this uh, to this guy I met there, and I was, uh, I was saying this, like, yeah, and then this forks, and all this effort is wasted. And then he said, no, you're looking at this from the wrong perspective. You fork it so you can do all this development work, you can see whether it works out, and you don't have to worry about breaking something because you're on your own fork. And if it really works out and there's a market for it, a lot of people will uh, will use this or adapt to it, then the entire community will see the value and then it will be backported to Postgres core and then becomes part of the core system. And then, yeah, maybe first it will become an extension and then you can use it. And then in the end, the extension might go back to the core. And I thought this is a really nice way of looking at it. Yeah, forks are part of the freedom of an open source project, right? For for projects that have that that kind of you know very liberal license. Um, yeah, but at the beginning, I really thought these forks were a waste of effort. Like there are so many bright people working on such on these topics, and then if you would have put all the effort into the core, then the core will develop faster. But now I see it more like it's a nice way to 
to get it done and to play with it and then you can get it back to the core in a stable and safe way i think that's 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 key right that, that certainly the community goes slow in certain areas stability performance are top uh top of mind and it's hard to get uh to get the, the community to to um to coalesce a, uh, around something very um uh ambitious so it takes multiple cycles to do something so i i think what you're saying makes a lot of sense the the the, the forks um help advance postgres and um and yeah then maybe something can be done with a combination of 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 development in core and and uh and uh, an extension when when the idea is more mature yeah, to me, it makes sense. At least it gives me a better feeling about looking to the system. Uh, I think, yeah, everybody can can contribute and there's no nobody is in charge. So you can't make quick decisions overnight. Like if you are the boss of Oracle, you could say, hey, this has to be done by tomorrow. And then everybody jumps. But with open source, it, it doesn't work that way. So yeah, maybe we, you lose some efforts. But on the other hand, you also can make very great great products and great extensions to it and get it to the core and then develop even faster. Now on the, on the topic of extensions, I think we, 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 I, for one, take for granted, you know, when I see another extension, I'm like, uh, the, the extension allows, allows you to do so much that I sort of say, oh yeah, sure, Postgres can do that because we have extensions. So I'm not surprised they can do this other thing and this other thing. And, um, and people can do so much just with the Postgres database. Um, are there and so I meant to ask you: Are there extensions that come to mind that you find particularly, you know, that, that you're particularly fond of that bring that have brought a lot of value to you? Yeah, basically for collecting statistics for us, our databases, we are really pushing it to the limits uh, more than every now and then. So just being able to collect statistics, it's it's key. So which, and what a, which extensions yeah. in particular are you thinking of? Yeah, I was afraid you're gonna ask this one. <laughs> Usually, it's yeah. on top of top of my mind, but uh... that's quite all right. You'll think of it in a few minutes. Is once you stop trying to think of it, um, you know, one of the one of the things we we try to do in this podcast is give people specific suggestions and links. Like when we publish the the podcast after the fact. Um, we will include show notes and there'll be a lot of links in there uh, because we, we want to give people resources and tips and tools. And what I'm curious about is you talked about reading everything you could find when you went on this journey from being a developer to, to becoming a Postgres specialist. Do you, are there particular books or websites or resources that you can recall? And I know I know I'm asking you to remember back to something you did five, six, seven years ago, but um, that you would recommend to someone who's new, who's trying to follow the same journey. Yeah, it's hard, but what I think, what you need as a, if you're starting with databases, is just a general overview. What, what these creatures are, how do they breathe? How do they live? Uh, because only if you know the basics, you know what, you, what you're missing on. So I would say every generic database book, whatever the flavor database you use, is, a, is already a good start. Because in general, all databases do the same thing. 
They run up the operating system. They use memory. They have to do disk I.O. They have uh, execution plans. They have SQL. You need backups, high availability solutions. And you have to go through all of these topics to understand at least the basics of it. And, uh, and only when, when you know what you need after that, then you can go to specific books and you learn who writes good blocks for your database flavor. And uh, for me, that was Amber Brooks, I think, for, for DB2. I learned a lot from her blocks. On, uh, she published them on Friday, Friday afternoon, usually. So for me, that's how I got used to it. Just get a gener generic book, then a book about performance, a book about high availability setups. I think I even have an Oracle book only about Armon backups. And then you Google it and you find blogs and you find good blogs and then you keep on reading the blogs and that's how you learn. And even today, I can't, I can't work without Google or, or the manual. Um, and when you say the manual, you're talking about the Postgres documentation or some other yeah. manual? No, Postgres documentation. I know what I want and I know the general direction, but I don't know all the details. And the well, Postgres I, docs are generally considered excellent. I have to Is admit, your they experience? are good. Yeah. yeah, they are good. I have to admit. But you have to supplement them with Google um, because maybe you can't find everything you need in the docs, I'm guessing. Um, what When you use Google to find information, where does it tend to point you to? To blogs? Or videos? Or what? I usually pick the documentation because the documentation is written by people who really know what they're writing about. And when you're pushing a system to the limits, it's not about what you read, but what is actually there. So sometimes you have to read it four or five times before you realize what is the picky nitty detail that is still important. And a blog is more like I give you a general direction. It's a nice topic. This is how we use it. But if you want to be spot on, I think you, you have to use the documentation. And Derek, I'm, I'm going to take a question from, um, from the online chat. Uh, do you use AI as part of your, of your work? Um, supplement Google and, and, and the Postgres docs? Or no, another part, other workflow? Personally, I do not. Uh, I think our entire database team is not using it. I know the software developers are using it for some parts of their job uh, to generate big parts of code, which can be generated. Uh, but for us, no, we don't. No, okay. On, on the subject of extensions, I, I wanted to ask you too, do you, do you, do you have to play a sort of defensive role? Do the developers come to you asking to add extensions that they think might be useful? but it's hard for you to support another extension. Does that, does that happen? I would say we are more on the careful side than developers. Like a developer is building something and he's enthusiastic about it and he wants to get it live. And when a developer comes to me and says, hey, I need this extension. It's, what I want to know is, is it safe? How does it impact performance? Uh, is it well maintained? Or did nobody commit for this in years? So. I have more questions than just, yeah, on the surface, it looks good. Mm -hmm. So it certainly takes a while to, 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 um, to onboard a new extension. I know that we have yeah. that, we have that issue um, at Microsoft uh, as well. 
Yeah, like like this week, I've been researching this uh, UUID extension, and it's a very small one. I think source code is not more than a few pages, but still, to get it approved, get it worked out, is the performance good enough? Is it stable? Who's maintaining this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it easily takes months uh, on the shortest. And when you onboard it, does it happen the other way too? That you find an extension that you're pretty sure you're going on board and you need to let the let the developers know or even about the existing extensions letting them know that the functionality is there educating them that there is some functionality they may not may not have taken advantage of yet not directly but indirectly we have uh, we are collecting statistics about query plans query execution times these kind of things and we are published it uh, using a uh, a user interface and they are using it to take a look at their own database, like, hey, this is how your database is performing. But they don't know this information is provided by an extension. Okay. So you talked earlier about partitioning. And um, it sounds like Adyan does some pretty sophisticated things with partitioning. And, and I don't know what you're comfortable talking about or sharing here on the podcast or not. But I'm really curious if there are, um, I don't know, is there a story there? Are there lessons you've learned that are worth um, sharing with the world about um, how you went from not using partitioning to now now using it the way you do? That's a very Um, open-ended question. Yeah, well, the good thing is I can tell a lot about partitioning. I talked about it at conferences uh, in the past, so people already know uh, what kind of setups we have. Uh, We have articles about it, and we actually published all of the functions we created to uh, maintain partitioning, or maintain partitions, I should say, uh, because our system is always under pressure, and if you want to do maintenance on partitions under pressure, locking becomes a huge issue. And there were already some some libraries out to maintain partitions, but we always struggled like, yeah, the partitioning maintenance need this access exclusive lock, which is a very heavy lock on the table, which basically means everybody don't touch it. Don't even look at it. I'm doing maintenance. But if you're, pro- if you're processing payments 24 seven a day, then you can't do this. So we basically created our own library to minimize the amount of locks we need when we are doing uh, things like creating partitions, dropping partitions, but also even adding indexes to partitions or adding foreign keys to partition tables. And and partitioning is so easy to start with. Like you basically just, you create a partition table and then that's it. And I remember we did this on a Friday afternoon and I was like, I'm not Classic. sure what's gonna happen. But I know we're going to hit problems. And yeah, of course, that's what happened. So were you working that whole weekend then? No, I didn't work over the weekend, but we made some mistakes, of course. And in the beginning, we created the default partitions uh, because the monitoring was not in place yet. And then suddenly you start writing information to the default partition. And... It's like, oh, that's that was not the plan, but now I have a default partition and it's growing forever. And how do I get rid of it again? And then you want to create indexes, and creating indexes is not easy, or at least not that easy on partition tables. So it's not like working the entire weekend, but over time we had a lot of small problems. 
Derek, you you manage you manage um, many databases, many different databases. You 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 talked a lot about a specific large and challenging database, um, but you manage several. Yeah, at this point, I have to be a bit careful, but uh, working at Gen changes your perspective on big databases. Uh, what some people would consider a large database, sometimes we consider a medium-sized table. So we have databases, clusters, which are over hundreds of terabytes. And I see. So we're Sorry, still doing ahead. a huge amount of transactions on them. So what I was going to yeah. ask you with respect to partitioning is, um, what are the parts of, of of a partitioning design that you you know is it sort of standard? You you implement partitioning pretty much the same way in in many of your database instances. Or you have to redo the partition design every time, but and, and you but you, you can only bring principles along to help you do that. I would say the most easy use case is we collect data, and when we access the data, it's always based on a timestamp. So data comes in, it's nicely ordered by time. When it gets older, you can have a new I don't know a new partition for a new month, and in time it basically shifts around, and all access patterns are also in time, and then. After time, maybe it's a log file, you want to get rid of it after a month, or it's PII data, you want to get rid of it after five years. It's really easy. Everybody, everything is centered around time. But sometimes that's just not the way it goes, and then you have to be more creative. Because I think partitioning is already complicated if you have one layer of partitioning. So I don't want to go to two layers of partitioning, and I don't want to have two partitioning columns. So we mm. partition on one column, and one column only and one layer we don't do double layers at least for now and yeah sometimes you you want to search your your dates or your data by a integer which is your primary key and all access patterns are following the primary key or it's used for joins then it becomes much more complicated so how do you separate this in time and yeah, then you have usually you have to make concessions both on database side where you give in a little bit of performance to find the correct partitions for your data either at inserting time or retrieving time and and the code around it also becomes a bit more complicated and sometimes there's no there's no way around it and we have actually one use case where we use a huge default partition and we split this default partition in ranges so we have Within one huge partition, we have all, all kinds of sub-ranges, and it also works out. But finding this solution, I think it took us months to find it. So yeah, you have your, your, your guiding principles, you know how it works, you know your, your limitations. And sometimes it's really easy, and sometimes it's, it's really, it can be really complicated to find, to find something that really works out. You know, you just made that, that comment about um... Usually you have to make some concessions. And it completely remind me, reminded me of something that Marco Slot said in his talk at PGConfU about distributed Postgres database architectures. And he basically said that everything's a trade-off. He said, usually to get something nice, you have to give up something nice. Um, I, I like the it's ring of to, that. It's and true, it it's good to keep so, that in so mind. Good. Because we we often don't think that we often don't think that way. We think we just have to think hard, and we'll be able to figure out how to uh, add something. 
and we don't really want to think about what we're losing. I learned that us, you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. Yeah, that works too. <laughs> it's nice to have eggs, and you can all you can do all kind of things with it. But if you want to have a nice omelette, you have to, you have to give in something. And in, uh, in my experience, that's how it works with databases. It's it's not magic. It's not you wave your wand and then you can get everything you want to have. You always you give some and you take some. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so as a Postgres specialist at Adyen, the developers sometimes come to you to get input advice guidance, and sometimes you go to them because you see something going on and you want to. Um, I don't know. I'm imagining you want them to make a change in their code or you want to advise them about a change you're making in your database. The question is, that was all just the lead up. The question is, do you find yourself using analogies to explain database concepts to them to explain some of these trade-offs that have to be made, like your egg analogy? But do you, and if you do use analogies, what are they? Yeah, I was afraid of the second part of the question because I use them all the time. But usually they, <laughs> they just appear to me. Oh. Uh, I had a discussion with a developer a few weeks ago and I was just in a room and I, I noticed this, this stack of post-its and then suddenly I started to use the entire table and post-its and different colors of post-its to, to explain different concepts when it comes to partitioning. So it's just a post-it and you write one letter on it and then you can already make it visual. I had the same thing about explaining uh, rate arrays and I explained it to this person using uh, what do you call these, these round circles you put under your beer glass? Coasters. Yeah, these ones. And I use them to explain uh, how a disk is rotating and how, how you can build a rate array and what are the trade-offs there and how much can you lose. It's more like using what I have around me and, and use it to make visually clear what the concepts are. I think that's my trick. I would never meet a developer without a whiteboard in the room. Mm. So it's not so much that you have standard analogies that you use, as much as whatever's available at the time, you're going to make use of it. If it's visual, visual it's physical, it makes it more real. Yeah, for me, that, that works out. Okay, and definitely so... The, the, just was going to add, and definitely that's one of the challenges of remote work. Um, that um, you know the whiteboarding isn't that great, and and we can't really, um, yeah, yeah, we can't really draw on paper as easily. We can't. Uh, so so, how how do you get around that? What do you do in that, in those situations? Um, you said you you said you didn't, but does it ever come up? Have to have a have a remote well, meeting and explain concepts. What do you do? And usually I actually go to the office for them. For me, that's the reason to go actually to the office, to meet people, to ex to talk people, go through problems, challenges, and, and meet people. So you can actually do all these things. But right, not all of the offices we have are in the Netherlands, so I can't always go to the office. Um, so what do I do if I have to explain it? Um, I'm pretty good with, uh, with Keynote to create slides, and you can have very easy images on them. So I usually start with uh, with Keynote and then you make this very basic shapes and that's how we start. I used to have this, this drawing tablet around me. I don't know where it is at the moment because it doesn't work with my Mac I have now. But then it was more like you can have this page and then you can write with a pen 
already. It was already easier to work with than Keynote. Yeah, you have yeah. to work with the limitations you have. Being able to write with a pen, I don't know why that is, how like biologically it's ingrained that that hand-to-brain connection exists. But I find it so much easier to sketch with a pen than I do trying to sketch, you know, with my mouse and online tools. Um, so that's the limitation I have to work with. I think that's okay, for so most of us. So I asked you for examples of the analogies and you said you were afraid of that question because it comes to you at the time. Like you, you don't have some Rolodex of, okay, here's analogy number three that I'm going to share with you today. So that's fine. I get it. And I don't want to put you on the spot, but I do know of one analogy that you recently used that I thought was super creative. And I'd love for you to tell everybody who's listening a bit more about it. Like, how did you come up with the idea? And, um, why does it work and how did people react to it? And the analogy has to do with roller coasters. And specifically, this was the talk that you gave at PG Coffee U in Prague a couple of months ago. Um, and the title of the talk was Explaining Postgres Concurrency Control Mechanisms Using Roller Coasters. Yeah, these roller coasters were actually a very nice find. And I tried different examples before that one. First, I started with the idea that you have a room and then you're not allowed to look at the room and then people leave or just come in and something's changed. And when you look again, something is changed. And because that's a bit like how transactions work within a Postgres database. As long as you look at the database, it's, it's like nothing is moving. No data changes. But as soon as you blink your eye, suddenly everything has changed. But it's again, it's quiet. Nothing is moving at that moment as long as you keep looking. And for me, I started with this room with people and if you blink your eyes, you're not looking for a while then, and you look again, something changed. But as long as you keep looking, they don't move. And that, that analogy didn't work out in the, in the presentation and in the story, it became way too complicated. So I had to look for another one. And then I was, I was looking for an example where it should be moving at different paces because sometimes your database goes fast, sometimes your database goes slow. But you also want to freeze it. And then I came, I was looking about what, what are the things around me that move fast and are kind of fun to watch. And that's how, how I finally found the roller coasters. And then I was explaining the concept to the team and how I wanted to connect it to, uh, to database transactions. They were like, yeah, this is really cool. Especially when you have this roller coaster and it's like this batch job is going to start and the roller coaster is at the highest point and then all the speed is going. You know it's coming, but it's not there yet. And at that moment, you can freeze the movie and have this picture of... You can already feel it, right? You can already feel how you're in front of this roller coaster, like, ah, it's coming. So yeah, that's how I found that analogy. And I think it worked out. I, it's, it was really fun to work on this, on this concept um, and play around with freezing images of roller coasters. I love it. So this touches on something else, right? PGConf.eu. And we already talked about FOSDOM PG Day. You were just there a couple of days ago in Brussels and you and Boris Mejias um, jointly gave a talk together on high availability, if I remember. Um, and I know I first met you at FOSDOM last year. So uh, you give talks at Postgres conferences and you do this regularly. Um, as do I. 
And I'm just curious why you do it. Um, Just a little bit of background too. I find this whole topic interesting. Like why do people pour so much of their personal time and energy into preparing talks or organizing these community events? Um, We had Boris Mejias and Alvaro Herrera as guests on episode three of this podcast last year. And and actually, that was the topic. Why giving talks at Postgres conferences matters. So it's definitely like a whole conversation in and of itself. But short answer, why do you do it? I think there are two answers to it. One is the, the, the more formal answer. Uh, we as a gen are using open source software. And I think it's a good habit to give something back to the community as well. So at first I was convinced, like, what can I do? Well, I can program as well. I used to be a Java programmer, so maybe I can be a contributor to the Postgres code. And I tried it out and I did not know where to start, to be honest. It's writing Java 10 years ago and now starting with a completely new project in a language I haven't seen in 20 years. That was rough. And then I also realized that I'm good at other things. Within Adyen, we face a lot of tough problems and we have to do research about how to push Postgres to the next limit. And one of the things we can do is share this knowledge. We can share how we do partitioning. We can share what happens if you do this under pressure. And we can share the libraries we created to do this maintenance under pressure and share this knowledge. And yes, spreading the knowledge at uh, at, at events like FOSDAM and PGDays and PGConf. I think that's also a way of contributing back to the community and say thank you. Uh, that's a more formal answer. But there must be a personal answer as well. Why do I do it? Uh, for me, that answer is much harder to, to get. I'm, I just like being on stage. Well, I'm usually pretty shy. But when I'm on stage and I can share knowledge with people and I can see people like, really understanding this thing you're trying to explain and they come to you after the talk it's like oh now i understand why i need to do partitioning or now i know why it didn't work out or oh, i'm so glad you guys already fixed it and now i don't have to do this i can just follow it that that makes me feel personally good as well i i i pause because i'm digesting what you're saying and it's pretty powerful there is something really cool to being on stage and there is something exceptionally cool to sharing your learnings and your expertise in a way that helps people in their lives, in their jobs, with the problems that they're trying to tackle. I, I, I love Tedek, what you said. When was the moment when you thought, I'm ready to give a talk, I have something to share now? How much experience did you have? What was the trigger? I think my first talk was for DB2 when I was just, we were, we had built a SaaS platform and I had collected a lot of information about uh, performance debugging around DB2 queries. And that was the moment I want, I said like, I, I've always been giving trainings. Like I was giving trainings internally to developers. I was training them when it came to databases, but also other topics. I remember being on high school and already my teacher asked like, hey, Derek, do you want to give this class today? And I said, yeah, sure, I can give the class today. So it already started early, 
But really having my own stories to tell. Yeah, I think the DB2 one was the first one and it was really bad. Uh, the slides were crappy, the story was crappy, it was way too short. I didn't know what I was talking about. At least I was I knew what I was talking about, but I didn't know how to share it with with an audience so they could actually follow what I was talking about. And then COVID came along and yeah, after COVID it really took a a good start again and I was able to spend time on it, did a good training. We have a lot of really good people within Adyen. And I did very scary things for myself because I built this presentation and this slide deck and I was proud of it. I was really proud of it and I put a lot of effort in it. And then I went to the design team. We have some amazing designers at Adyen. And I was showing my presentation and I said, what do you think of it? And he looks at it and he said, I think you have a good story, but your slides are really messy. And I think I spent days and days on these slides. Well, I don't think so. I know so for sure. But then he explained me the basics about slide design and how do you make them more easy to digest for the audience and more calm and visually stronger. And then I learned a lot. So I approved all my slides and then, and then I went to sales and I said, how do you tell, how do you sell a story? Because I'm a geek. I sell the truth. You guys, you sell a story. How do I how do I sell a story to to an audience and and then I learned from the sales team. Uh, yeah, that's that's how I I learn and how I improved my my skills. But still, if I'm in front of an audience, I'm still scared every day again. Are there any particular sales team tips on how do you sell a story that you can recall? I know I'm putting you on the spot. It always is about the why. Why do you share this? Why do you have to tell this to this audience? Why do you have this slide? Why is this visual on your slide? It's always about the why. Every part of it. So every part of what's on the slide, of what you say, needs to be intentional, that you need to understand why it's there and make sure it's there for the yeah, right reason for your audience is that what you're saying yeah because if you're if you're working on a topic you go left you go right you do something stupid yeah you make a mistake you go back you try it again it's never a straight line but if you're presenting the story to the audience i think you should take the hand of your audience and guide them through the easy path so you tell them what is in it for you today before you start? And then all the way through, you have to keep them on a straight line to the finish. There, there should not be any deviations, which should not be there. I learned that also you have to kill your darlings because you have been working on this side path and the side path was so interesting and you learned new things and it's cool to share and it makes you feel like, oh, I'm so smart that I did this and I want to share this to my audience as well. But I learned you have to you have to cut these sidelines off. It's a straight path and you have to go there. And everything is all the deviations are distracting for your audience. And when you're on stage, you should not prove you're a smart person. You should share something your audience can use. And for me, that's my job when I'm on stage, not showing off. Yeah, caring about your audience. Yeah, it's all about them your a audience. Path that they can come with you on, that they're capable of like journeying with you. 
Um, that you have to kill your darlings quote. I just have to give attribution to that. That's Stephen King. And yep. um, he obviously is a brilliant, brilliant fiction writer, but he also wrote a book of nonfiction um, that was part autobiographical about a really like important part of his life where he almost died. He got hit by a car and, um, you know, is lucky to be alive. But it's also a book about the craft of writing. It's called On Writing. And that's where I first got exposed to his famous quote about killing your darlings. Um, and uh, yeah, but maybe someone can drop the link to that book in the chat. If you want to become a better writer, that is like my number one um, writing recommendation book. So how did you get exposed to the Stephen King quote? Where did you hear it? Do you remember? I think my presentation coach uh, told it to me, but I'm not completely sure on this one. Okay. All right. Well, I love I love you sharing your learning from the sales teams. What about learning about slides, having them not be so messy? Are there any actionable tips that you can remember from that, those lessons? Yes, but these lessons were the hardest one I ever had. Because yeah. when I'm talking to the design team, they say things like, this slide doesn't breathe. <laughs> and then I'm like, no, of course it doesn't breathe. It's a slide. No, 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 that's not what I mean. So you, you get this very weird discussions. So I, they learned me how to work with a design grid, which basically means every object you place on the same part of your slide every time over and over again. So it's always the same top line, the same bottom line. You always have the same space on the left and on the right. And this is how you make it stable. But for me, without having a grid to actually show it to people, for me, it's really hard to explain these concepts because they are so hard for me as well. I just I just create my slides to my best of my ability and then I I don't know it for slides and then I go to a designer and I say, this is what I'm trying. Can you help me out? Because for me, it's 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 really tough to do. I'm getting better at it, but it's not my nature. I'm I'm going to share a tip, and I'm curious if this ever came up in in your learning journey with respect to slides. Um, Larry Lessig used to present at oh, I, I saw him present at conferences more than twenty years ago, and uh, one of the things I realized with his slides is they were almost framing him. And by that, I mean that um, the focus was on him and what he was saying. And the slides were like the backdrop behind him, supporting what he was saying. Um, and, and so that's when I first realized that you had to kind of think about these slides as part of this holistic system. That is the person, what they're, you know, where are they standing? What are they doing? What they're saying? And then what's showing, because that's what the audience is consuming. They're not consuming the slides by themselves, right? It's, and, and so you don't want the, the slides to be so messy and distracting that they, they have to tune out the speaker because the, the visual is so complicated. Does that, does that resonate at all? Yeah, totally. Your slide has to be easy. And without you telling something with the slide, maybe the slide doesn't even make sense to your audience. It has to be very easy, easy to digest, easy to understand. The easier, the better. 
it's a contribution to to the story to you as a presenter and to to what you are trying to share with your audience if you want to share bullet points with your audience just send them an email i love that quote we're gonna write that down <laughs> yeah people wait me for saying that's this. very that's very quotable very yeah quotable. i'm afraid of that well actually can i can i ask oh. uh um Sorry, go ahead, Claire, Claire, if you were. I just have one more thing I, I've been building up to that I have to say. Um, I wanted to give you a personal invitation, Derek. Um, the Pazette CFP. Oh, so let me back up. Pazette is the new name for what was CytusCon, an event for Postgres. So it's free and virtual, organized by my team at Microsoft. It's called Pazette, an event for Postgres. And the CFP, the call for talk proposals, is open until April 7th. Um, so I just wanted to make sure you knew about it and uh, had the opportunity to submit talk proposals to that. It's What I like about it is that these talks, because they're virtual, they are accessible to all the people who can't travel to these in-person Postgres conferences, right? Because of travel budget or family or kids or whatever is going on in their lives, elderly parents, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think it would be great if you submit a proposal. So I will there definitely you go. submit more than one. Uh, I didn't want to do it before today. It sounds a bit weird, but I didn't want to catch up on some episodes I missed, and I didn't want to sign up for the new event because I, I want to go into this podcast kind of fresh and crisp and not be influenced on things I might see or read or hear already. So, yeah, but I will definitely submit, and I know I have plenty of time. Yes, you have plenty of time. That's awesome. Um, uh, it's the the event itself. Just for people listening to the podcast, is happening in mid June. Um, there'll be two live streams in America's time zone, two in EMEA. Sorry for the shameless plug. I I'm head of the talk selection team, and so I'm very biased that um, I want lots of the amazing Postgres users and customers and developers in the world to submit because obviously that. Obviously, that makes for you know a great event and uh, lots of learnings to be shared. So, okay, I'll get off my my promotional uh, soapbox here. Uh, I think Pino had a question a second ago before I, I went did. down my. Pizzette. I did. No, no, no. I, I'm glad you mentioned Posette, uh, Claire. It's it's very exciting. Um, the, the the previous. Uh, um, Conferences have been really, really great, and um, and and I'm I'm just so, I'm so looking forward to it, and I love it that it's virtual. Um, I love that I can just that all the videos are there, and yet there's also the community, the live streaming. So thank you for that. Um, I was going to ask Derek. You know, we talked about about live presentations, and I felt that just for completion, you know, just to ask you, you know, you've blogged too. Um, is it an equivalent? Is it an equal equal passion? Do you like doing it as as much, uh, or and what's different about it? Yeah, just tell us about your experience blogging, please. Blogging is nice because you can share more deep knowledge. You can really go to the details and explain it all. And in some ways, it's easier to do because it's. You can take all the time you need. There's not not like you have to fit in one A4 paper, or it has to be readable within five minutes or ten minutes. So if you want to take, I don't know, half an encyclopedia to share it, you can share it that way. 
what I'm always surprised about when I'm writing a blog is how much time it takes and how much time it takes to get it right. Uh, when it came to partitioning, we were like, oh, we will publish a new article every month. And I think we are publishing a new article every three months. Because you have to do the research and you have to get it exactly right. And then I want to have some nice visuals as well. So I work together with the design team on the visuals. But So you have two articles on, on partitioning out uh, la late last year. Is that right? Yeah. Is, and there, I think is there a third part coming? Uh, we published it yesterday, I think, or the day before yesterday. So it's, it's really fresh out. And with the second block, uh, I created this public repository with all the functions to, uh, to do maintenance on the partitioning. So yeah, then you have to build a repository and everything that comes with it. So that also took time. But it's, yeah, it's, it's also a nice way of sharing. And it's available for everybody for, for forever and ever. So it's not like you go to the conference and you can only share slides to a limited group of people. But on the other hand, Going to a conference and talking to a lot of people, meeting people, gives me a huge energy boost as well. So if I had to pick between going to talks with live audience and the blog, I would pick a few live audiences a year. I like having a mixture, Pino, because at the end of the day, I can reach more people with a blog. I can impact more people's day-to-day -day work. Um, with a blog approach, just more people are going to read it versus attending a talk. Although when you give an in-person talk and you publish your slides and there's a video recording of it that then gets published on YouTube, that can really up the impact of an in-person conference talk because you are then reaching more people than the ones in the room, than those privileged ones in the room. Yeah, so mm -hmm. our talk at FOSTEM was not recorded, uh, but me and Boris want to have a recording anyway. So we will come together, have the slides, record it, and then we can still publish it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually something you can do. You can self-record and, you know, get it up there on YouTube. And um, with all the tools these days, it's easier than ever to do that um, and to have something that's high quality. Okay, um, when, when Pino and I were talking to you, um, Dirk, and preparing our episode brief, obviously, for those of you who are listening, we do not practice these conversations. Nothing is scripted. Nothing is rehearsed. We're having this conversation on the podcast for the first time. However, we do have a set of 10 questions that we agree on up front. It's kind of like a safety net. Like if we're going down a path and we're not sure what to do, then I, you know, I can always go back to that, that bag of 10 questions. And one of those 10 questions, I'm just really curious about. I have this picture of you and Letitia Avro playing chess at the speaker dinner in Prague uh, before PG Confie U started. Uh, and that's not the only time you play chess at Postgres events, I've heard. So I'm curious, like, why do you play chess at Postgres events? Well, if I can play chess, I just like playing chess. I'm a big fan of playing chess. Uh... It's this magical game with only 64 squares and half of them are covered by pieces. But from a human perspective, the, the number of possibilities on the board is basically endless. And among the Postgres people or more technical people in general, there are a lot of good chess players. So I always carry my chessboard around 
And sometimes it brings excellent chess games, and sometimes it has, has me meet new interesting people. I remember playing in Belgium last year where we were at a bar with maybe 20 people on one long table. And then the chess board was on the top table and every 10 minutes we, everybody shifted. So new, two, two new players at the chess board and you had new conversations. It was really fun. Oh my gosh, that sounds really fun. Um, is there something in particular that chess has in common with Postgres? I'm just fishing. Yeah, it's problem solving. That's what I think that's my job. My job is solving problems and that's what I really like to do. And chess is also about solving problems in time pressure. I was going to ask, do you, do you use a clock on some or, or uh, on some of your games? Yeah, usually we play with a clock uh, on the conferences. It makes sure everybody gets a turn at the table. So you play for, I don't know, five, 10 minutes and then new players can uh, can join the game or two new players can play. Um, and online, everything has a clock. So I play uh, daily chess where you have three days to play a single move. And I play games which should be finished within five minutes. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a little bit of an analogy you can make there where, you know, if, if, if you put the time uh, limit too low, right, then you're just making mistakes all the time on both sides. And the winner is the person who can make the fewest mistakes or can hold out the longest uh, and not run out the clock, right? That, th there maybe the Postgres analogy breaks down a little bit more. But do, no, you, do you like playing two-minute two minute games, one-minute games? No, I'm, I'm better at the very fast games. Uh, I'm better at the very long, uh, long games. The faster the time control, the lower my rating gets. And there's a huge gap between my fastest and slowest uh, rating. Absolutely. But yeah, I would I... say playing daily chess is more like having a project with databases. You have a lot of time and you make slow progress. While Blitz is more like you have to fix it right now and you have to survive. It doesn't have to be perfect, but just survive to the next day so you can work on something better then. Yep. And you get used to getting, being a sloppy. I've heard that, I've read that um, the, the, the Blitz games are not, it's not a good habit for uh, serious chess players to play a lot of Blitz or speed chess. No, it's more like I want to have something quick to do now which is not work related so i can just play a game for five minutes and then just get yeah i don't know get rid of some energy so i think you have an analogy for a future conference talk somehow tying together chess with some of the uh, postgres uh performance problem solving that you have to do with intense time pressure if you haven't oh. given such a talk already that is no, I never did. I never okay. talked about performance. I submitted a few abstracts related to performance and partitioning, but never got accepted. Well, that could be because you submit so many good abstracts. And I say this as having been, uh, along with Andrew, who's listening in on the chat, on the talk selection team for PG Day Chicago, um, where I had to review a whole bunch of good talk submissions from you. Okay, um, we are almost running out of time. Um, before we leave, and I'll check with Pino to see if he's got any more questions, I'm just curious, on this journey from being a developer to becoming a Postgres specialist, uh, are there any other 
tips or moments that you've thought of during the conversation today that I didn't give you a chance to talk about? Anything else you want to share with the world about that journey? Well, I transitioned from a Java developer to a database specialist because I thought it was fun and it was appealing to me. And just because I think it is cool to do. And I think whatever you do, you have to follow your heart, whatever it is. Don't get stuck in some, some job you don't like and you're glad it's Friday. Do something where your passion is. Then life and your job is just much easier. I, I, I call that the toothbrush test. When you're brushing your teeth in the morning, are you looking forward to what you're going to be doing at work that day? And uh, my, my goal has always been to make sure I'm passing the toothbrush test in the mornings. Um, and that I get in, that the work I do causes me to get into flow states occasionally where I literally lose track of time. Right? And these are and the I'm so, Yeah, I'm so surprised. Like, what? It's eight o'clock in the evening? You're kidding me. I thought it was five o'clock. So, um, yeah, those are the best days. Yeah, I remember working on a, on a partitioning problem. Uh, we were working with, uh, you can have a partition, but yeah, it's hard to explain in words. We have like ranges of partitions. You need a whiteboard. Yeah, I need a whiteboard and then post it. But it was a complicated question from one of the developers. Like, can you do this? And I was like, no. Well, oh, maybe. And then I was working it and I think I thought I was, yeah, I think I can make this work. And then I came home and I was like so restless and I was like, yeah, now I know how it works. And then I started to do it and I think I finished by two o'clock in the night, but then it all worked immediately. It's like, I want to have this done. I want, it's so cool. I'm so proud of it. I'm going to build it right now. Yeah, pretty cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really, really enjoyed this conversation today. Um, Pino, before I wrap and go into the, the finale script, is there anything? Nothing for me. I love it that you all ended on the, the toothbrush test and passion. That's why we're here. And so many of our guests bring up this, this exact topic. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us, um, Dirk. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again on the Postgres conference circuit. Uh, the next episode of this podcast will be recorded live on Wednesday, March 6th at 10 a.m. PST. Um, the guests and topics are um, yet to be announced, um, but you can mark your calendar now with aka.ms slash path to CytusCon, all one word, hyphen EP13 hyphen Cal. Um, you can also get to past episodes and get links to um, the podcast on all the podcast platforms at aka.ms slash path to Cytoscon, all one word. Um, there's, there are transcripts included on the episode pages on Transistor 2. And wait, 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 don't go. Before you go, if you've been listening to this podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps other folks find us. And a big thank you to everyone who joined the recording live and participated in live text chat on Discord.